1: it's 36 from the Vault. My name is Steve. My name is Rob. And we have reached the final episode of our mini tour season. Here, it's a late winter tour, or actually it's an early winter tour. It's a late 2022 tour, but we're early in the winter. And we're calling this Comfort listens because these are shorter episodes where we're talking about music that have that has given us comfort in recent months. In the jam world, some of it dead-related, some of it not. Uh, We've gone all over the map here. We talked about Legion of Mary last week. We delved into Goose and Trey Anastasio in the same week. Can't wait to see the numbers on that episode. Uh, And we kicked off... What did we kick off with? It's been so long that I can't remember our first episode. (laughs) Philco, of course. We talked about Philco, of course. Phil Lesh. But now we're going to the mothership. Finally in our fourth episode...
2: Yeah, just to mention up top that uh, our little mini tour here is presented by Smartwool. Oh yes, nice warm apparel for uh, a late fall, early winter tour. Uh, Check out Smartwool. Uh, Yeah, so we we, we've you know had some tangential discussions of the Grateful Dead so far. You know, thirty six from the vault was perhaps is a Grateful Dead podcast. Uh, so let's talk about what the Grateful Dead has put out since we went off the air. Uh, most notably, there's been Dave's picks and things. There's been various Grateful Dead releases, of course. But most notably was this big, giant Madison Square Garden 1980s box set uh, put out. 17 CDs, six shows, two shows Ooh. each from 1981, 1982, and 1983. Um, a really interesting set. So I have not heard the whole thing. I don't know if you have Steve. Did you pick up this no. box set? No.
1: No, I have not. Um and I haven't gotten this album yet. Although cuz they they're all MSG shows, but the one that they released as a standalone album is from 81, right? March of 81.
2: That's right. March 9th, 1981. And I do love
1: Spring of 81, Grateful Dead. I actually, you know, I've talked about how I'm not big on listening to shows in sequence necessarily, but I did do that once with Spring of 81. I, do, I went on a Grateful Dead tour. Nice. I think How I many last, shows is that? I don't remember exactly. I didn't do the whole tour. I, I bailed. Okay. And I All think right. that's where I learned. I'm like, I can't do this sequential <laughs> thing. A little too much for me, but I think I made about 12 or 13 shows. Um, like The tour starts in Chicago, I believe, like, late January. Like, they play Chicago Theater. Mm. Uh, I think it is, and then, you know, they end up at Madison square garden. um, So you didn't make it to the show when you did that tour? No, I think I bailed somewhere in like mid February. Okay. Okay. But, uh, so, so yeah, so like it was fun listening to this
2: record for that reason. Right. So the one that they released on streaming, which is the one we're going to talk about in this episode is that 1981 show, March 9th. Uh, I'm still kind of torn on whether I want the whole box. Uh, I think I'm going to put it on my Christmas list and see if somebody else will spend $180 on it for me. (laughs) Cause, uh, The reason I wanted to talk about this show is because I feel like I grew a lot over the course of 36 from the vaults in my appreciation of 80s dead and Brent era dead. And this box set coming out and this particular show coming out on streaming was a great like test of that. Like I was actually kind of excited when they released this more so than if they had released, you know, if they were like, here's three shows from 77. I would have been like, okay, yeah, it's it's another box set of 77 from The Grateful Dead. But when they announced this one, has really cool looking art and packaging and everything too, I'm like, I think I really want to hear that, which I don't think I would have said uh, before we started recording 36 from the Vaults, because these Ah. shows or this show in particular is Brenty as hell. (laughs) It's a super Brenty show. Uh, So I really want to talk about it
1: with you. Yeah, It's funny you say that because as we were putting these episodes together, Dave's Picks 44 showed up. Okay, yeah. And that's a show from near the end of uh, Brent's tenure. It's uh, University of Oregon in Eugene, June twenty third, 1990. So I think Brent died like a month later. Yeah. And and by the way, I I support you entering (laughs) the 80s, embracing the 80s. I don't want to push you along too much. But if you're going to call this show Brenty as hell, you got to hear this Days Picks 44 because <laughs> you are going to have to revise your opinion, my friend. Okay. Because this show is super Brenty. We're getting solo Brent in the show. We're getting like Far From Me in here. Okay, that's true. Four there is no Rasp. Brent
2: songs on here, yeah.
1: And, you know, look, I mean, this when this CD arrived, and I don't want to hijack this by just talking about <laughs> Days Picks 44, although I love Days Picks 44. This is like a great record. Kicks off with feel like a stranger into West LA fade away. I was like, hell yeah, here we go. Yeah, it's a and sleazy it's as hell. Sil- Yeah, we're getting silky, silky right away, and then we're getting to like you know Jerry singing about drug deals gone bad and eighties Los Angeles. You get an Eyes <laughs> of the World kicking off uh, disc two, which I gotta say, the dead. You know, I've I'm famous for complaining about tempos with Eyes of the World that I am a. I'm a supremacist for seventy three and seventy four eyes of the worlds. I feel like they get too fast by the end of the seventies. I feel like in the
2: early nineties they started playing it at the right tempo again. Yeah, yeah, I think that it's was a, well, I always thought it they, was a Hornsby influence, but it sounds like it was before he came back, right? Yeah, and it's probably because
1: they're a little bit older too, so like they kind of mm-hmm. aged back into playing it slower, but this eyes of the world is is awesome and so yeah i I'm, I'm just saying I support. Your embrace of Brent era, uh, Grateful Dead. But there you can go much Brentier. Yeah, it, it is than Brentier
2: and Brentiest. Um, yeah, this, I would, this MSG
1: 81, you're just you're putting a toe in Brent. You can right. put a whole foot or your whole body in as you progress in the decade.
2: Well, I would love to talk about that show with you, but I was uh, a real dumbass and forgot to sign up for Dave's Picks uh, for Ooh. this year. I did sign up for next year, so Dave... Uh, You have my hundred dollars looking forward to getting your picks next year. Uh, This show though. Okay. Talking about Brent and this show, uh, what really stands out. And we talked about this a little bit whenever we covered a Brent show during the Dick's Picks run. uh, They are just so much better at mixing Brent shows now. So shout out to Dave. For producing this set, shout out to Jeffrey Norman, who is the guy that does the mastering on all of the modern Grateful Dead releases. Uh, I don't know what happened technologically, because I know there were issues with the master tapes of '80s shows where they started recording to cheaper cassette tapes instead of reel-to-reels. I, I don't know all the all the all the details, but that was always the excuse in the Dick's Pick series of why the '80s shows sounded like pretty bad, like especially relative to the 60s and 70s shows. Uh, but they figured something out because I, when Brent is properly mixed as part of the Grateful Dead sound, as it is on this 81 show, uh, I, I appreciate his contribution so much more. Like that, all the things that drove me nuts about Brent and the 80s shows we covered, usually really weird artificial keyboard tones, uh, sound, I think, frankly, pretty awesome. Like once you have them at the right volume relative to everybody else in the band, uh, did you think that this like stood out as something that it sounded a lot better?
1: Yeah. I mean, it definitely sounded better than the Dick's picks that we've heard. And, you know, again with Brent, I just feel like him in the late eighties is like superior to early eighties because he is more of a presence and he is rising to the co frontman man, uh, role that he really had, you know, like this. Not to keep going back to Days picks forty four, but there's a there's a Cassidy on there, and it's like, oh, you hear Bob and Brent singing together, and we've talked about that on this show, like how that's such a great era for Cassidy. Um, but yeah, I, you, I I think on the on the Dick's picks, it's not even that he has like crazy tones. It, it just always sounds so plunky. It always mm-hmm. sounds like a guy. Hitting like like tack or something, and not a <laughs> not a keyboard. And on this uh, MSG eighty one uh, show, it sounds like an electric piano. You know, it sounds like a real keyboard. It is interesting because you know you, you shouted out Lemieux and, and Jeffrey Norman, and, and definitely shout out to them because this set does sound great. I looked at the audience recording of this show, and that sounds like pretty fantastic. <laughs> and you look at the comments on Live Ar- Archive and I, the commenters at least are talking about how this is like a well-known audience tape that mm-hmm. people love. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that they put out this proper release so you can hear it in its full form. But like, if it didn't exist and you just heard the audience tape, like even that would sound better than the Brent era Dix picks that we heard.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, after you, you know? said that, I went and listened to the audience. And it doesn't sound that much different from the soundboard, to be honest. And like um, I was when I was doing sort of a close headphones listen to the official release, I noticed a lot of patches. Uh, We talked about this a lot with Dixpics, where they would patch the soundboard with an audience source. Uh, and I'm pretty sure they just use that audience source <laughs> to patch it uh, because it sounds yeah. like, and you can, unless you're like really listening on headphones and really paying attention, you don't hear it flip back and forth very obviously. Uh, yeah, the only, so, the only yeah.
1: difference I can really tell is that the audience is a little bit louder mm-hmm. on the audience tape. And I mean, did they cut down on some of the, uh, I think they cut out some of the noodling or tuning up between the songs. Because I feel, because we're going to talk about the China Writer. Yes. Uh, from here, and like on the audience tape, I swear, they're like tuning up for like two or three minutes before
2: they start playing. <laughs> yeah, I think and they like, did chop that out, yeah. Like
1: on the audience, it's like, the audience china is like 11 and a half minutes. Yeah, yeah, And I, saw that. And I, and I think on the proper, uh, on the album that they put out, I think it's maybe eight or nine minutes. So, right. yeah, they, they, so they cut out some of the tuning. But yeah, other than that, if you listen to them side by side, it would be hard to know which one is which.
2: Right, yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, I wanted to talk about the the China Rider, which I, I want to say when I first listened to this, I was on vacation with my wife. We were in Sedona, in Arizona, and I was like, I got to listen to a dead show while we're driving around this beautiful landscape. Like the Grateful Dead are a great road band, particularly in like the Southwest. I probably should have gone for maybe like more country rock dead, like a 71 show might've been more fitting, but I was like, Hey, this just came out. I'm going to put this on. I'm going to force my wife to listen to Bob do CC rider as we're driving around in this beautiful landscape um, where it really, it's got a pretty good first set. It's like what you want from an 80s dead set, right? It starts with feel like a stranger. It goes into Althea. There's a good bird song. There's a deep Ellen blues, which is kind of cool. Uh, But In the middle of New Minglewood Blues, there is an absolutely bonkers sound (laughs) appears in the first solo of the jam of Minglewood Blues. And I will tell you that this is the first time since we stopped recording 36 in the Vault that I was like... I wish I had a podcast to talk about this crazy sound that <laughs> <laughs> shows up in Minglewood Blues. I tweeted at a guy yeah. that it was like phantom limb syndrome when people like have amputated yeah. limbs and they feel a tingle in the arm that isn't there anymore. It, it was like a phantom yeah. podcast syndrome where I was like, this is like the most 36 from the vault thing. Uh, so much to my delight. Minglewood Wood ends the first set. And it goes into the second set, and they start up China Cat Sunflower, and that same crazy sound shows up again <laughs> in the first minute of China Cat Sunflower. And I was like, "Yes, this is like this is what I want now from '80s Dead." is just some like incredibly bonkers tones. But the so, thing was, I didn't know who was making the sound. Yeah. Uh, so,
1: because is that Brent or is that Bob doing a talk box? Like that right. was my like to me. It sounds like a like like Peter Frampton-esque yeah, or yeah. like Bon Jovi doing, uh, you know, uh, shot through the heart and you're to blame, you know, like the, you give love a bad name. Is that the one that has the talk box on it or is yeah. it, uh, Oh,
2: okay. Oh, bah, bah, bah. I can hear it in my head, but I can't remember the rest of the song. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, oh, no, no, you're right. Living the, on a prayer. Living, living on, a, on prayer a prayer is the one with the course.
2: talk. Yeah. Wow. 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 Yeah. That sound. <laughs> um, that's it. That is what it sounds like. So I immediately thought, this must be one of the guitarists, right? And usually I'm like, oh, Bobby probably made some terrible choice with his tone in the 80s. That's what I'm always complaining about. <laughs> uh, but no, Bobby's still there. And I'm like, well, all right, well, Jerry was, you know, starting to get into weird, you know, this is post-Mutron. Maybe he was putting his Mutron through a weird distortion pedal and was making this crazy noise. Uh, and I listened closely, and Jerry's still there. So I've narrowed it down now to the fact that it is indeed Brent's. And what I think it is, is um, if you remember the studio version of Alabama Getaway has this like synthesizer solo, which sounds like a synthitar. It's like a synthesized guitar. And I'm pretty sure it's the same synthesizer in the same setting, similar sound on both Minglewood Blues and China Cat Sunflower. Uh, So (laughs) it's just like such a hilarious and perfect 80s Grateful Dead choice that you've got two amazing guitar players playing, you know, actual guitars. And then Brent's over there like, you know what? I'm going to make my synthesizer sound like a guitar too. But of course it sounds like a synthesizer pretending to be a guitar. So it sounds like a talk box or it sounds like somebody with this like intensely synthetic auto wah going on. Uh, it's just, it's, it's a totally crazy decision and I love it. Uh, so that's what first yeah. drew me to this China writer. And then... That he only uses that sound in the intro. It doesn't, he doesn't use it the whole song or anything, which is probably a good thing. Uh, but then it turns out, you know, the more I listen to this, this China Rider is kind of amazing. <laughs> like, I thought, I was always of the opinion that China Rider after, you know, 74, let's say, was in decline. We talked about this with like some of the 77 versions that popped up in, on Dick's Picks, that it was like, it's China Rider. We love hearing it. It sounds great. It can never reach the heights that it reached in 73, 74. Uh, this one really popped out to me and was like, man, this is, this is actually a pretty serious China writer in an era that I would not have expected it to be taken into an interesting or longer direction in the jam.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you have the climax that happens during I Know You Writer that we all wait for. But for the most part, I feel like they write a groove and it's not really about the big dramatic going to knock you over type moment. It is i, I – I'm probably reaching with this, but, like, it's slightly kraut-rocky to me. Like, it just rides a groove, and it's like you hear them interlock with each other so intricately. And it is more about just appreciating um, how they're able to maintain that mood over the course of, like, what is it, about 13, 14 minutes? Yeah, when, when you add up both songs. Um and that's what drew that's what drew me into it. Cause it, I don't think it's like an obviously great China writer the first time you hear it. It wasn't mm-hmm. to me anyway. Like mm-hmm. when, when you said you want to talk about it, I listened to it, and I thought that's pretty good. But it didn't knock me out really. It was only like after the third or fourth listen that I was really kind of appreciating like the subtlety of what they were doing here. And that's what I think ultimately like won me over. I mean, you looked this up on Hetty Version. I mean, this is like considered like one of the great China writers, isn't it?
2: Yeah, here, here I am saying, wow, I, I can't believe this great China writer I discovered that like nobody ever heard about that Dave finally put out, and what a, what a great uh, deep cut that he he pulled out of the archive. Then I looked it up on Hetty Version. It's the top rated. 80s China writer. <laughs> it's the first China Rider uh, that appears on Heady version. It's at number 10, I believe. It's the only, the, the highest rated one that isn't in that, like, 70s, early 70s sweet spot. Uh, so it is, even before this uh, release came out, was known as, like, if you want to hear a great later China Rider, this is the one you go to. Uh, so it, it, this is, you know, was, I guess, common knowledge to... to Deadheads far more savvy than I. But uh, yeah, very well respected. And yeah, it's, it's, I, I totally agree with your take on it. It's like, um, it doesn't peak as hard as like a 70s one. It doesn't get as weird as a 70s one either. It's just kind of like finds a zone and sits there for a long time. It kind of has like a little mini peak in the jam that sounds like it's about to pop into I know you're right or where it normally would. But then Jerry like pushes it for another couple minutes before he gets. To you know the singing part of I Know Your Writer, which is really nice. And then the solos and writer are particularly strong as well. So it kind of encapsulates what I like about this whole show, which is not really a show that has anything other than this China Rider, it doesn't have anything like superlative, right? There's nothing that is like a, a you know, an absolute classic version in this entire show. But it hits that like thing that I'm starting to appreciate about the 80s dead. Where it just has like a really pleasant (laughs) like sound, like like floaty sound for the entire runtime. It's not maybe as experimental or ambitious as a 70s dead concert, but it has and you're gonna accuse me of it being a backhanded compliment, but it's something that sounds really pleasant and that I would love to just put on uh, you know, for like a a, a good solid comfort listen, say. See
1: Uh, I think Because I take issue with it not being as experimental or as mind-blowing because I don't think that this is the peak era of Brent. I think it's like 87 to 90. (laughs) And I think if you listen to the best of the dead at that time, that's where it moves beyond something that's just pleasant or is sitting in like an entertainment zone or like, like where we're just being a professional rock band. I think it does become something more transcendent at that time. In that era of the dead. And I think it's because Brent does have a bigger role in the band. I I think he sounds better here because of the recording or how it's mixed or whatever, but he still is not as Brenty as he's going to be later on in the decade. Right. Again, I'm gonna shout out without Annette on here, because (laughs) I think if you listen to that record, you know, you listen to them like what they're doing like with Brantford Marcellus and Eyes of the World. I'll put that with any eyes of the world from the 70s in, in, yeah. in terms of like expanding what that song is and taking it in a different direction. I, I, I'll put that with any eyes of the world from the 70s. I, I, I think that that really is them kind of pushing and, and, and taking it in a different direction. Um, so again, I would say like for full on Brent, it's just not the early 80s. I think it's the late 80s. I see. I see. 90. For me, well, anyway. I think, you know, again, I'll go back to Days Picks 44. Right. Great Brent moments on there. And because <laughs> I think he has a little bit more to do and they gave him more free reign. What's cool about this, though, going back to the China writer, is that I think Brent is right there with Jerry and Bob in terms of the interplay. You know, you, you think of the interplay of the guitars and you have Phil in there, of course, taking a prominent role. But like what uh, what uh, Brent is doing, on the, it sounds like electric piano. Mm-hmm. It adds to that hypnotic groove of this version that I don't think I mean, Keith obviously was an amazing player, but I, I just think, you know, Bren is adding his own flavor to it and he's adding something that I don't think you would get from a seventies China writer as great as those are. And obviously this China writer is an outlier in terms of all the great ones. I think if you look at that list, you have this one at number 10, and then it just goes back to the 70s. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You know, it's, it's so you know, this is a pretty unique thing. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I love the subtlety of it. I love that it's not going for the obvious peaks, but more of like a sort of ambient almost payoff. Right. Like it's going to be the
2: sum total of the zone out of this version that's going to hit you at the end. It's going to wash over you. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And the electric piano thing is what I'm talking about with like it being properly mixed. Like it's got that sharp Brent's early 80s electric piano sound, um, which that one Dix Picks with the Scarlet Fire. I think it's the first Dix Picks with Brent's where he is playing that same electric piano effect, but it sounds like somebody hitting a xylophone. (laughs) It's like so loud (laughs) and so sharp. And it like, just like kind of ruins that Scarlet for me. Um, it's the same effect, but I think we're finally, you know, with these, not just this release, but the Dave's pick Brent releases and like uh, more recent eighties, uh, Grateful Dead releases curing what it sounds like properly balanced in the mix. And I like the sort of sonic textures that Brent brings to the table. Like Obviously, I'm like a Keith's partisan still, and I love what Keith does in a China writer, but I think you're right. This is like a different approach. And it's actually is nice to hear that after we kind of overloaded maybe on the 70s in our Dick series. So yeah, I mean it's great. I think, you know, a couple episodes ago I said it was Goose Curious. I think maybe I'm 80s curious. And so like the early 80s is me uh getting into appreciation of what the 80s dead were doing and Maybe I need to work up to the late 80s a little more when Brent is, as you say, like, co-leader of the band rather than just, you know, introducing some interesting new sonic flavors that uh, push the dead in some different directions.
1: I mean, I think just generally speaking, I'm I'm excited to see more shows from the 80s and 90s getting released. Um There was a recent Dave's Picks from Dave's Picks 39 where it was 1983. You know, 83 not necessarily regarded as like a great Grateful Dead year, but like that's a really cool show. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm going to speak up for Dave's Picks 44, which I've been loving. Like that's my favorite Grateful Dead album I've heard in a while. Um, So I just love hearing these different eras and, and allowing less heralded uh, periods in the Grateful Dead to shine because I think every period has something to give even if it's like you know even if it's not, even if it's not your favorite era to appreciate what they were doing at a particular moment in time it just adds to the rich, richness of this band's story and you don't get that if you're just listening to you know one decade or you know one lineup of this band
2: mm-hmm. so Steve should I buy the box set 175 $175 I think, you should go on, shows.
1: I, I think you should go on eBay and get a copy of Day's Picks 44, <laughs>
2: uh, which, which, I, which I'm hitting
1: hard in right. this
2: episode. Will you, uh, uh, I, can you dub a tape for me?
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was just going to shout out, too, like, uh, Day's Picks 40 was another 1990 show. That was yeah, that like was uh, right- Dear
2: Creek, right? I have that one.
1: Yeah, that's like right before Brent died. Yeah, it was like July eighteenth and nineteenth, like his it third is, to last show or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to dwell on this because it's just sad and kind of spooky. But like, he sounded really good. Yeah, before his death. I mean, it wasn't. I don't know. I I, I I I I'm not privy to what was going on in his personal life at the time. I'm sure he wasn't living a super healthy lifestyle, given that he passed away pretty soon after this. But not translating musically. I mean, he was bringing it. Right up until the end with the dead. So it it is amazing to listen to these shows and just be like, wow, like he passed away like so soon. Like he basically got off the road and died on this tour.
2: It's just amazing. Yeah. Well, I feel like we've really played the greatest hits here at the end of our mini tour, Steve, because we're talking (laughs) about how sad Brent's death was, how good without Annette is. Me complaining about uh, keyboard and guitar tones. Uh, We really gave the fans what they wanted here, I think, at the end of our mini tour, uh, talking about the Grateful Dead. So, uh, Well, that's right. And these were our comfort listens,
1: and hopefully it was comforting for you, too. And we want to thank Smartwool again for sponsoring this mini run of mini episodes. Uh,
2: So, yeah, thank you for listening. And I'm sure we'll be back at some point. I don't know when. This isn't. Uh, it's not goodbye. It's just see you later. As you can see, spontaneous things happen. Steve and I get yes. together. Uh, spontaneous jams at any yes, time. Buy- you could get a thirty-six from the vault in your uh, podcast feed. So exactly, uh, buy, buy a lot of smart wool, and we'll be back <laughs> sooner <laughs> exactly. rather than later. Smart wool will send us on tour again. So and <laughs> and keep uh, keep harassing us on Twitter. It was great when uh, Rick from Goose played Tennessee Jed with Phil and friends, and we had like. 15 people simultaneously tweeting at us <laughs> about it. So, yeah, uh, I, I feel like I have to pretend to hate Tennessee Jed now more than I actually
1: do. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I let people down if I'm like, I just don't like hearing it on every Dick's Picks album. Right. I actually don't hate it that much, but people don't want to hear that shit. They want to hear us hating Jed. Exactly. I'm, I'm fine doing it. So, Thank you all for listening to this episode of 36 from the vault. It's been great doing this tour and we'll uh, see you down the road.
2: Yep. See y'all later.
0: Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road.